Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from David Hasselhoff about his new dark action comedy series Z Network. Warner Media's Anthony Root and Annalise Sitvast on their unscripted strategy for HBO Max across Europe, and Entertainment One's Michael Lombardo discusses his slate for 2022 and beyond. Z Network is an upcoming German action comedy which sees Knight Rider and Baywatch star David Hasselhoff play a version of himself in a story about a theatre play that plunges him into the centre of an international conspiracy. The series, from CBS Studios and Dogs of Berlin maker Cyreal Entertainment, was the brainchild of the latter's Christian Albert, who alongside fellow producer Siggy Carmel joined Hasselhoff at C21's recent Content London. The trio spoke to Emma Cox about the show, which is due to debut on RTL SVOD platform TV Now this autumn. Siggy, should we start with you? Would you like to tell me a little bit about how this collaboration came together, please? Yeah, um, I did uh, some some research on uh, German IPs and uh, um, then I decided to do uh, to go a little more into who are the top 10 living um <laughs> stars in in Germany, actually, and uh, I found out that David is amongst them. Really? Yeah, believe it or not. (laughs) Something I learned. And what I was talk- I, top 10? I don't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> and who were 11. the others, more importantly, yeah. <laughs> um, and I talked to, to Christian uh, um, <laughs> and said, I think we should do a show with David Hasselhoff. Let's think of something. And two days later, uh, David contacted us. And, Coincidentally, and or? He just... No, uh, I, I'd, I'd <laughs> seen a, a show that he did in, uh, on television in America called Dogs of Berlin, mm-hmm. and it was really great. <laughs> and and I, uh, I had this vision of going to Germany and, or going anywhere and doing a film in a foreign language and then using David Hasselhoff to sell the show because mm-hmm. nobody would know the German actors in Israel. They would not know them in, in, in Spain. They would not, maybe they would know them, mm-hmm. you know, certain ones that are especially in this show, mm-hmm. because we got a really good cast. But um, they would know David Hasselhoff, because everyone has a childhood, and they grew up watching Knight Rider and Baywatch. And so I said, why am I not doing a show, especially in Germany? And I called Siggy, and lo and behold, two days before, he had this vision of doing a show with... David Hasselhoff and, uh, and Christian. So you're both having these kind of desires at the same time. It, the yeah. world comes together in a, in a beautiful way. And then what happens next? You fly to London, right? Yeah, because we had to find out uh, what kind of show David would like to do with us. And, and it's always great to have a personal meeting and to get to know each other. And then David talked about his ideas, uh, uh, we had some ideas too, uh, especially Christian. He can talk a little bit more about that uh, in a second. And then out of this, we created uh, this crazy dark comedy, The <laughs> <Sir> Network. <laughs> we will be explaining a bit more about the concept and the story in a bit. It's slightly complicated and there's lots of spoilers, but bear with us. We, we will be coming to that. <laughs> Christian, let's bring you in. Can you tell us a little bit about those initial meetings, what ideas were kicked around and, and how that progressed? 
Uh, well, first, um, Ziggy told me about this uh, crazy coincidence. <laughs> and uh, before we before we actually flew to London, I said, okay, let's have a phone call with him and and just uh, yeah get to know each other. And I was um, just wrapping a show uh, that was the end of 2019, which tells you a little bit about the crazy timeline on this project. So <laughs> this was probably end of November, beginning of December. Um, I was uh, still shooting and I was um, talking to to uh, David and getting to know him on the phone. And pitching like just a few odd ideas just to see what he wiped with. And he talked uh, a little bit uh, very open and, and private about um, where he is in his career, wh what he's done so far. Um, um, I mean, we all know that he's been in Baywatch, which is uh, still the, and will always be the most successful TV show of the 20th century, you know, with all the syndication and all that. And what uh, what he looks for as an artist, and uh, what I found was that that was a very interesting conversation. And for me, that uh, bore the idea to actually start from there and make that part of the show, yeah, like the the whole. And that's how I <laughs> basically, <laughs> even though um, he told me that he doesn't want to do um, David Hasselhoff characters, which he's done a lot in, in Half the Record and like. Um, I don't know, the, the Bob uh, Squarepants um, <laughs> show, I don't know, it's called in English. And I mean, that's been done a lot, even in Guardians of the Galaxy. So um, basically my idea that I really got excited for <laughs> after the phone call was uh, to ask him to do that one more time, but make it about not wanting to do that. And I thought that was a great start for a character journey to, to actually um, work a lot about this, especially since I've now been in the industry for 25 years as well, and I've worked with quite some stars and I think there's a lot of oddity and, and weirdness that's almost Lynchian in, in, in fame and how you are in this bubble as a famous person and how everything is weird and nobody really interacts um, quite the normal way. So I thought that was interesting and David wanted to really be, because he loved Dogs of Berlin, really wanted to go a little bit dark and a little bit um, action thrillery and I after this phone call, uh, made it my job to come up with a pitch and, and that I got it, get excited about. And then um, we flew to London, had a dinner, and I pitched the whole show to David. And um, yeah, I mean, it's not long after that I wrote it down and pitched it to CBS. And now it's already in the can. It's uh, really been super, super fast. Super fast. David, your point of view from that meeting, would you, is that how you remember it as Christian describes it? It sounds very collaborative. It sounds like it's come from you. It came from my heart because I, you know, I, for the longest time I've been the Night Rider and the Baywatch guy. And uh, when I'm, they came and saw me at 9 to 5 at the West End, I was doing the Savoy Theater 9 to 5 and I was playing a character and, and I really, really enjoyed meeting them. But... It's difficult for me to go out, you know? It's like to go to Covent Garden, my, my wife is Welsh, and she would go, God, let's go to Covent Garden. And people would just come up to me and they'd say, can I have a picture? Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't say, you know, we hate you, we love you, you know, you're corny, or <laughs> they wouldn't say anything. They'd say, we have a picture. And I, I would turn right around and go right back into the hotel. And I went into a, a kind of a phase of, of not embracing the David Hasselhoff, mm -hmm. you know, but, but really learning who David Hasselhoff was. And David Hasselhoff has a need to look in the mirror and say, that's cool, you know? And Knight Rider is cool, but it, it's, it's old. Baywatch is cool, but it's old. It's, mm -hmm. it's what it, I'm, I may be doing a new Knight Rider movie. There's a Knight Rider car. 
in this Z network, which um, I'm not supposed to reveal, but I'm revealing it now because it was cool. And <laughs> it, I got to drive it. It was awesome. I think people and, are going to be very excited yeah. about this. Well, they should be excited about mm -hmm. it because it, it pairs me and Kit back together. And we For the save, first time in how long? What, 25 years? Yeah, yeah. and we, we saved the day. And, and it's, um, it was like falling off a log. I mean, I got in the car and drove. Uh, Christian let me drive, and I, I said to Christian, I'm not really sure about this car. Be careful, <laughs> like the camera operator, because I've only hit one camera in, in like, you know, in 90 episodes. And that wasn't my fault. But, but it... I did a couple of, well, you know, I, did, I drove. But this is the original car, just to clarify. Huh? This is the original kit. There is no original There kit. is no okay. original kit. Okay. Yeah, that's another story. But okay. there is no original <laughs> kit. It was, um, we, had, we had nine cars per day. Got you. On the set. Anyway, I, I wanted to look in the mirror and say, that's cool. And, and he came up with a concept about David Hasselhoff playing David Hasselhoff, playing Michael Knight, playing Mitch Buchanan. Um, Christian, should we bring you back in at this point? Would you like to be the one to, to explain the concept here and let the audience know a little bit more about it? Um, well, I think uh, uh, this is basically the starting off point, which we already explained uh, pretty well and ex extensive, I think. Mm -hmm. But um, this is just uh, the reason why David is getting into the show and getting to Germany, because there's a, a weird and unusual offer to play theater, which is a great part uh, and a great play, but it's in Germany and... Basically, his agents are kind of bullshitting him into where it's exactly located, and he gets on the plane and gets to Germany, and from there on, uh, shit goes wrong. He's <laughs> being uh, carried off into a whole other town. It's not Berlin, like he was told. Um, he's got to share the car with another actor. His, his cab is gone. I mean, it's a whole nightmare of a day. And uh, at the end of the first episode... Um, um, he's meeting Henry Hübchen, his co-star, which is also a German star who's a pretty famous local guy um, around the same age as David, who also plays himself in the show. And he reveals to him that he was part of a celebrity spy network that uh, was used in the Cold War to access places and spy on people that um, normal agents can't get to because it's like red carpet events and, and the likes, like where, wherever VIPs can get to where normal people can't. And he reveals to him that 30 years ago, he was uh, trying to get uh, compromising material on David Hasselhoff. They were actually met before and he shares it as a funny anecdote. And David is not amused because he didn't know that so far that he was almost entrapped. And then at the end of the first episodes, he finds themselves in a similar uh, situation where he thinks it's almost like a flashback to that time. But then uh, it looks like another has a hit job on him. And he defends himself, fights with the people, and um, the women that was uh, set to entrap him explodes on a bomb. And he's standing in the middle of a hotel room in Germany, just being cast in the lead, and he's full of blood and doesn't know what to do and says, oh, shit. <laughs> so we're taking a whole uh, left turn at the end of the first episode. So we have action, we have dark comedy, we have some surrealism. This is like a huge amount of mashup of genres. <laughs> it sounds out of this world. Um, Siggy, tell me a bit about the, the financing, if you can. Mm. At what point did CBS uh, become involved and, and how did that relationship work? 
CBS came in very early um, uh, as we have a, a, a first look deal with CBS and, and we always talk about our new ideas and shows uh, uh, with them and they loved the, the pitch from the start. They, they loved David on the show and the combination of David with Henry Hübchen, which is quite unusual for a German show. And mm -hmm. so they, they were on right away and then uh, um, Christian and I talked to RTL Plus which is a German a local platform and they loved it too from the start because uh, RTL the, the free TV network became big because of of David and because of Knight Rider back then so there is an old relationship between David and RTL and when they heard that he's on, on, a, on a project that we want to do, they, they were on right away. Mm -hmm. We added on a couple um, funds, which is quite usual in Germany, and that's the financing. Okay. Simple as that. David, do you want to um, remind people, who I'm sure everybody here knows this, but remind or, or clarify what that relationship with Germany is? Why do you have this special relationship with Germany? Well, um, you brought the wall down. <laughs> <laughs> Almost single-handedly. <laughs> I sang on the Berlin Wall to a yeah. million people on New Year's Eve, mm -hmm. and uh, I got a lot of uh, credit for bringing the wall down, which I had nothing to do with. I just was singing a song <laughs> called I've Been Looking for Freedom, mm -hmm. and there just happened to be a million people there, and it was quite a night, mm -hmm. and... Uh, And it's lasted like 30 years. <laughs> I'm, I'm a one-hit wonder um, <laughs> because the Looking for Freedom is still following me around as the Knight Rider car mm -hmm. is following me around. <laughs> But to have someone explode in my arms and, uh, <laughs> and the scene to be actually funny is really hard mm -hmm. yeah. to, to wear all this blood <laughs> and to make people laugh. Mm -hmm. And, and they do. They laugh at Henry Hoopchen's um, reaction to me with the blood. She's exploding in my arms. She's like, God. And, and I'm trying to explain to him. And he, he doesn't really understand what I'm saying. Um, I think he will eventually. <laughs> um, because it's going to be looped in. Uh, for German television, it'll be in, totally in German. Um, will I be looped in German? Yes. I'm not looping myself, am I? You have to. No, no. No, <laughs> no. I sing in German. <laughs> But I can't, I can't, I can't speak it. Um, it's a hard language. Anyway, um, the, um, the challenge that Christian had was, was to make it laughable and funny, mm -hmm. but dark at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, And I was on board from the very beginning. I had to read it, you know, his pitch three or four times before I really got on board because it was David Hasselhoff again. Mm -hmm. And I, I really shied against playing myself. Mm -hmm. But then I realized it was David Hasselhoff, not the David Hasselhoff, <laughs> but David Hasselhoff from my heart. Yeah. And so when I did that and, and welcomed the cast, which we have a great ensemble cast, um, then I was, I was okay because the other actors were really good and they're really stars in their own right, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Henry Hoopshin. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's, that's the second part of the, of the plot is that obviously I, I pitched mostly the, the dark turn 
but then um, it takes out that the it turns out that the uh, theater play is a front for a mission, and uh, David wasn't supposed to know that he was just supposed to be there and part of the cast, but now he knows. So he has to work on the mission, become a spy, and also has to make sure that the theater ensemble never implodes. But there's, as there are very weird characters on board, um, it's lots of fights, lots of behind-the-scene moments, and so there's a, there's a whole other storyline about putting on a show, you know, like a classic Hollywood film that, I don't know, in the, in the 30s, 40s would be with James Cagney, you know, just the over-the-top a theater production. So that was also a lot of fun, especially since it's not a TV show about a TV show, but a theater, it's kind of more, um, it shies a little bit away from, from being too much about the industry. You know, it's, I think mm-hmm. it's more accessible this way. It sounds almost like a play within have, a play type concept. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a whole meta concept anyway, mm-hmm. right? And the, the question in the, in the show is, is David even... Is all what's happening even real or is it so over the top that it can't be real and David is just uh, losing it? You know, I mean, there's a character that uh, lovely um, actress, Athena Straits, that plays his daughter, his fictional daughter, uh, who's also his agent. And um, she's very worried (laughs) about David when he tries to explain what's going on because it's so unbelievable. So, yeah, that's um, that's just wanted to hop in there because David was mentioning the cast. So it's not only about him. Obviously, he's almost in every scene. That was really tough for, for him as well to be in a foreign country for four months and be in, in every scene every day. But uh, there's also a big ensemble cast around him that's really quite fun. The ensemble cast was the reason that Baywatch worked, was the reason that Knight Rider worked. And, and it, it's to surround yourself with really good actors that, that make me want to rise to their level. Mm-hmm. Um, was really a challenge for me. And um, they were great. They, they accepted me as David Hasselhoff, not the David Hasselhoff, <laughs> but they accepted me as an actor. And that was cool. That was really um, a big concern for me in the very beginning, to accept me as I am. Because they were all like, you know, kind of gaga, you know? They went, I've been watching you since I was a little boy. <laughs> and I'm going, that's great, but I'm an actor. Yeah, and they, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're an actor. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so you had to strip away those kind of preconceptions before you could begin? Some, some, some people I did and some people I didn't. I don't think I had to, to strip away Christians, although he did sit in the Knight Rider car <laughs> and uh, was like a little kid. Um, but uh, but that's okay. I mean, that's okay. It's it's part of your childhood, you know. It's like Knight Rider. I mean, it's like Guardians of the Galaxy. Why did I get that role? I got that role because the director saw me as a child, sure. and and he was affected by by my emotions. Christian mentioned that the the challenges of you being in almost every scene, and of course having to deal with a, a second language, which you can sing very well in, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you say you can't talk very well. Um, what what were those challenges like for you in terms of language and in terms of being in a different country and being so involved? Well, the last day was was kind of tough because they were speaking Polish, mm-hmm. English, German, Moroccan, and Arabic. Mm-hmm was all floating around mm-hmm. at the same time. So um, it was a challenge. It was, a, it was um, you know, I, I got to know Henry uh, Hubchen, who didn't speak a lot of English, as I don't speak a lot of German. Mm-hmm. But 
we had scenes together, like long scenes. And because I liked him so much, because he was such an endearing person, I kind of knew what he was saying, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, I, I just kind of went with it. And so it was uh, a long journey, and the journey's come to an end, and I hope it's a, a big success. I really do. And you have an executive producer credit. Can you tell me what that involved? Being executive producer in, in, involves a, a lot, you know, and, and, and it, it really, I kind of took what Christian told me. He said, just, there's three words, just give up. <laughs> and I, I did, I just gave up. And, and when I gave up and gave in, I reached the zone. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the zone was, was part, partly being an executive producer because uh, I was an executive producer on Baywatch, so I know what's involved in, in producing. And when I called Siggy and, and Christian and said, look, I'm having a bad issue with my leg, they were really, I said, we either cancel or we, we do the show. And we did the show. Mm -hmm. And they, they wrote around me, mm -hmm. around my, my handicap. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they, they wrote around me. And so it was um, a, a challenge being the star, but also being an executive producer and watching all this madness go on because there was a lot of people that were kind of first responders. They, they didn't really save a life, but they were first on the scene that they've never done it before. <laughs> and being gracious and nice to them, I wouldn't fire them. I would say, okay, here's what you should do, you know? That, was, that got a little bit old. Siggy, what do you think audiences are going to make of David in this role? Does it feel like a very different performance? How do you think the audiences are going to react? I think they will get a very different performance of David uh, and, and uh, uh, they will be surprised how many facets his, his character will have. And mm -hmm. something I wanted to say already earlier is... Uh, uh, something that inspired us a lot uh, uh, to do that story is when we saw David perform in that theater play here, here in London. Mm -hmm. uh, he showed a character trait that we didn't know that much about that he has. It's self-irony. Okay. And he's, he can really laugh about himself and, and, and basically do everything for a good joke. And, and uh, this is, I think, a very rare character trait because... Not every actor can do that, and, and we implemented that a lot into the, the plot, and I think people will love that to see that he laughs about himself. I mean, it's, it's, it's something rare, and, and Henry has the same character trait, and, <laughs> and the two of them together are, are, for us, are like rare diamonds that we rarely have on screen. So I think that's, that's something special that, that at least I am very much looking forward to when the show is ready. Christian, let's bring you back in. This is the first multi-language programming that CBS have done abroad. Um, so I just wonder whether you feel any, any pressure about that, whether CBS uh, have been good to work with. No, I, I don't. I, I mean, I, there's always pressure, uh, but I don't feel any extra pressure from CBS. Um, I know this is a public forum, and I, I can't be uh, too open about it. But there is just a God's honest truth that I love working with them. That's why we signed the deal. Um, we had uh, some other projects that we developed with them uh, outside of the deal. And um, when they came to us and obviously enjoyed the mutual work as much as we did, 
they offered to pay money to just um, go with our ideas uh, to them first. And um, this was actually the first uh, show within that deal. And already they bought it. So it's a very successful first look deal. And uh, it's just been, especially Megan, who's my go-to person, who's, who's my um, executive from the network that I work with the most, is she's just very, very smart. And um, the way that she asks questions always push me forward. Like uh, we all know the jokes and memes about the stupid studio notes. I personally encountered them a lot in my life. And <laughs> there's, there's a network that at least, I, I, it's not always the network. It's very uh, often also the people that you're working with within the network. So I don't want to generalize too much. But the people that I've encountered with CBS were really, really uh, great. And I don't, I feel super comfortable. And we just had the very rough um, first four episodes screened like at the rough, rough edit. And without that relationship, I wouldn't have them screened yet because there weren't, there were really a lot of rough edges in there, but I felt so comfortable that I was showing something that in a more hostile environment, I would never share. And it was great. You know, it was very collaborative. It was almost like doing a workshop together, you know, that feeling. So I can only recommend it. And I feel, felt um, very, very comfortable. And the same with RTL so far. It's my first time working with them. Even though they're a big, famous network in Germany, I never really, other than a writer when I was super young, but that was a, a sole writing job. It's the first time I really worked with them, and they reshaped their whole organization um, just very recently and put a lot of um, interesting people in power, and uh, that was also a great experience. So, so far, that side of the job, which can be super ugly and, and very draining, has been only fun. It's been a very interesting festival so far in that we've talked a lot about international co-productions and obviously, you know, with the increased globalisation of television, that is happening more and more and more. And mm -hmm. particularly with, you know, Parasite on the big screen a couple of years ago and then Squid Game this year, it feels like audiences are happy to watch foreign language films, television shows, watch subtitles. And in fact, David, you were telling me that you've been watching a Dutch programme, I think, recently that, that you enjoy. Do you think audiences are going to be happy to watch this in both languages, either language? Do you think it's no longer something that is perhaps off-putting? I think, personally, it's, it's a, I enjoy reading the subtitles because the looping sometimes is so bad. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, it's really bad. I mean, there's certain characters that are really good, mm -hmm. really good. Mm -hmm. And like the guy who played Michael Knight was really good. Mm -hmm. um, and, but there are certain characters that are really, don't really fit into, into the mouth of that person. Mm -hmm. So it's better to watch the subtitles. And um, I find that you really get a, a true sense of the film watching the subtitles and reading the subtitles and saying, okay, this is what they, they intend to do. And kind of like, are they going to do it? And they, and they do it. There's also a whole aspect um, of, of storytelling that's lost um, if you're dubbing um, that we are now ready to explore. Yeah. And that is the, the international side of things. Like David, this is a story about David being in a foreign country. And if, if you only have the dubbed version, um, there's a part of the story that is just lost to the audience because he doesn't there, there's moments where he doesn't understand what is being said around him that fuels paranoia sometimes it fuels the humor and uh, it's just there's a movie I, I really like from Roger Every called Killing Zoe that's uh, 25 years old by now where Eric Stoltz play, plays a bank robber in Paris in the middle of a heist and everybody around him speaks French and uh, I like 50% of the situation was the language and in Germany they dubbed that film 
And it was super weird to watch that film dubbed. And um, I think back in the day, 25 years ago, the audiences weren't ready, especially in Germany. But now there's a whole generation that actually refuses to watch the, the bad dubbed version and demands the, uh, the original. And RTL is also, is, this is uh, uh, mainly done for their streaming platform, not for their, for their old uh, terrestrial um, screening. And they're going to uh, offer both languages as well. So the people that still are uncomfortable with reading, they can watch it, but there will be parts that are just lost to them. And Christian, you, you mentioned earlier the first look deal that you have with CBS. Can you tell us what else is in the pipeline? Um, well, we're doing the, uh, our next show is also with them. It's called Oderbruch. Is uh, is a, to quickly summarize, it's like a true detective in Germany in the countryside with a, a supernatural twist. So um, that's something that we actually <laughs> started developing before the network, but took a while longer because the, the, the main writer is a very intricate, um, kind of a control freak genius, and he just took a long time to write it. But I think it's getting there, and we're ready to shoot this in March. So that's the next very next project already again with CBS. Not RTL, though. It's um, Digital in Germany. You know, the, um, my relationship with RTL was, was, went back to the very beginning of, of, of a guy named Helmut Thoma. And Helmut gave me, uh, called me one day and said, we were receiving the award as the most famous network in the world, and uh, we'd like you to give us the award. I said, why me? And he said, because the first show that we bought was Knight Rider. Mm -hmm. They acquiesced Knight Rider. And so they, they bought Knight Rider and put RTL on the map and put David Hasselhoff on the map as well uh, in Germany. Mm -hmm. And so it was uh, kind of a, we both made each other super famous. Mm -hmm. And he was, uh, he was the first guy. And, and so it was really nice to see that they remembered that mm -hmm. and that they said anything with David Hasselhoff, you know, will consider. And they, and they, they with Christian and, uh, and Siggy, they, it was a no-brainer. And you've come, you've come full circle. We're almost out of time, but I just want to ask you a, a couple of questions to end on. No spoilers, obviously. We don't know what happens at the end of this series. But in theory, could Z Network come back for a second series? Would you like to do that? <laughs> God. Um, depends on where it's shot. I mean, <laughs> woo! Yeah, that's a tough question. Yeah, I, yeah, I would love to come back. I'd love to work with Christian again and Ziggy again. And, you know, it's just a question of... Uh, of you know, how we rise above this. And it's pretty easy, you know. It's, it's well, once you see the show, you're either going to love it or you're going you're gonna to love it. <laughs> and and I, I think you'll really love it because it's got a twist that is so weird that it just, it takes you on a ride. Mm -hmm. Took me on a ride. Mm -hmm. Took me on a really wild ride. I mean, the wildest ride I've ever had. I mean, Night Rider was wild, Baywatch was wild, but this was wild. And, um, and, and it, it turned out okay. Yeah. I hope. Yeah. And finally, the big question of Z Network, of course, is fact or fiction, you decide. What can you tell us, fact or fiction? Well, that, that was something that I came up with a long time ago because I, I went behind the, the Berlin Wall and, uh, you know, I sang... And the girls, these two girls saw me, and they, and they were, ah! And then I said, oh, am I the guy who talks to the watch? And they went, talk to, to watch? No, you are the man who sings of freedom. 
And I went, wow. And it's opened up a whole new uh, world of, of amazing people to me when I've gotten to know what really happened behind the wall. So is it fact or is it fiction? You know, and that, that's what this show is about because yeah. it's, it's either funny or it really happened. Mm -hmm. And we really can't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> you have to watch the show to find out. Yeah. You've done so well. Thank you, everybody, for, for managing to talk about it without spoiling anything. I know how difficult it is to talk about this concept, but hopefully everybody has now an idea of what it's going to be. So good luck with the rest of the edit. Look out for it. Um, thank you so much for attending, everybody. And thank, thank you, you once again to my wonderful panel, to Christian, to Siggy, and, of course, to David. Thanks very much. David Hasselhoff, Christian Alvart and Siggy Carmel speaking with Emma Cox. Warner Media EMEA Head of Original Production Anthony Root and Head of Unscripted Production Annalise Sitvarst spoke to Stephen Armstrong about their strategy for HBO Max across Europe, what content they're looking for and opportunities for international collaboration and co-production. So we have Annalise in from Amsterdam and Anthony in the hall in London. Uh, and since you were last here, Anthony, representing HBO, what, probably two years ago, a lot has changed. So perhaps, yes. not, I mean, <laughs> an awful lot has changed, but also with HBO, a lot has changed. So um, what has, where are you now? What, what, what is the... Well, <clears throat> look, I talk about HBO, with HBO generally continues and thrives in the US as a, as a linear operation, uh, but married now under Casey Boyce with HBO Max. In Europe, um, we've changed in the originals, uh, I think, I would say an adjustment rather than a massive change. Um, for the last 10 years or thereabouts, we've been HBO Europe, a sister company of HBO in the US. And I guess that I interpreted our, our, our mission as to echo in whatever ways we interpreted the HBO brand, as is well known internationally, in the countries where we were working, starting with Central Eastern Europe um, and then expanding to Nordics and, and into Spain. So we were, we were um, joined at the hip with the US and trying to find stories and approaches and writers and themes and uh, uh, that we felt reflected that particular highly defined brand in a way. So with the advent of HBO Max, um, all the HBO Europe existing services in, in, in those three regions uh, are morphing into becoming HBO Max. We've already done it in Spain and the Nordics. In the first half of next year, we'll be doing it uh, in Central and Eastern Europe and in Portugal. Um, and there are other countries coming on, 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 on stream as well, with the goal being 190 countries for HBO Max by 2026, I think our CEO, um, Jason Kyler, talks about. Um, so if you think about how, what, what our mission now is in the originals, this sort of will set the context. I know it's an unscripted session, but it sets the context perhaps for what Annalise uh, might want to talk about on unscripted. Um, the first thing to say is we are still fundamentally locally focused. The success and failure of a show uh, and all our work will be judged primarily on how it does in the country of origin. We're not in the, we're not in the English language international production business. We're making Swedish programs for Swedish people, Spanish programs for Spanish people primarily, trying obviously to elevate 
uh, and surface, those shows that we think will travel around the whole of the Max um, empire, as it were. Uh, but, but we are still as locally focused. We want buzz. We want to exist in the popular culture in a country for the period of time that we have a show uh, in the foreground on, on the service. So that, that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say would be that, um, in, in a sense, the function of the local originals has slightly changed. Um, I talked about echoing the US brand when we were pure, pure HBO. You've got to think of, of HBO Max as a platform rather than a single distinct brand. You know, we've got HBO there, we've got Cartoon Network, DC Comics, the Warner Brothers shows, feature films, and HBO Max originals. And the whole point is to expand the subscriber base beyond the people who are going to come for HBO and HBO alone. Um, so we are part of the effort to attract audiences that, that uh, in addition to, if you like, the pure HBO, HBO audience. Um, that, that leads us to, to sort of second pillar, which is a broadening, a broadening of the output. We want to have shows that aren't network confusable with broadcast networks. I mean, we, we, we have network with a twist, network plus various sort of in-house in house, uh, terminologies for how we try and look at it. Um, but we do want accessible programs. It doesn't mean everything has to be as broad as, uh, broad as, uh, as everything else because it's the slate that has to be broad. Uh, but we do want to, to reach people who would not necessarily have subscribed had it just been the pure HBO brand. So that's the second thing. The third thing is we don't, we're absolutely not sacrificing our commitment to distinctive storytelling. To, to being bold in that storytelling, to authorship, uh, both sometimes in unscripted and certainly in documentary and certainly in scripted. We're not, we're not compromising any of that. We, we want high production values um, uh, and all, all the rest of it. But we do want a diverse slate. And the diverse slate involves having shows at different price points, not just everything being super expensive uh, scripted material, which leads us to other genres such as unscripted. We do do, we've been doing single documentaries very successfully for many years. My colleague Hanka, Romanian film, got two Oscar nominations this year. Uh, we've had very successful documentary series and we'll continue to do those. Um, we've got one top of the charts in Spain at the moment, a true crime story, um, Dolores, the truth about the Vanenkoff case. We've had very great success in, in Sweden with one this year, Preo Bay Kill. So, so that's a segment, but we're here today to talk to you a bit more, Annalise, about um, how that unscripted would fit in. So that sort of, I hope, contextualizes for you the HBO Max thing, but later I'm happy to answer any questions about that. And just before we get to Annalise, just perhaps for the audience, we've got a variety of local HBOs. We have the sort of the global brand. Where do people find the people they want to speak to? Is yes, okay. So just in terms of the structure, we are still in a very, very locally focused organization. As if you went out express corporately, the budgets lie in the countries. They don't lie, lie centrally. Um, so we have a, a team under Miguel Savat in, in Madrid. We have a team in Nordics under Christian Vikander, for Jonathan Young overseeing the Central and Eastern Europe countries. And we've added other people and are in the process of adding other people um, to that. So those, that's where you would take your proposition. In addition to our regional territory people who have teams of between you know, 
two, three, four, up to seven, eight, depending on the size of the country. We have, we have people who are genre specialists, of which Annalise is one, Hanker is another on the documentaries, Steve Matthews is on the scripted side. And they're there to work with, collaborate with, support as necessary um, um, the local teams in the pursuit of the different genres. And there's a question, I think, which follows on from that from the audience, and, um, mm. which is, do HBO Max originals only sit on the SVOD service, or will they also be used on the linear channels in Europe? Uh, well, we only have linear channels in Europe and Central and Eastern Europe, and they will be seen there. Um, they will not be seen necessarily on the uh, linear channel in the United States or, 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 or anywhere else. We did last year have three shows on the linear channel in the United States, but that isn't an assumption. But they will be seen worldwide on the Mac service. So that's, that's US, uh, that's um, Asia, that's Latin America and, and Europe. That is our intention. Now, in unscripted, it'll be more refined than that because we may not have the rights to do that in some instances if we're doing a format that uh, has been sold in those regions. And uh, Annelies, you've obviously been in the <coughs> industry for a while, but just there may be some people who haven't dealt with you because of, you know, you've been quite Dutch focused and so forth. Perhaps you could introduce yourself and explain how you come to where you are today. Yeah, so I joined uh, the team, Anthony's team, about six months ago. Um, so um, it's been uh, really great uh, so far. And before, he, uh, before I joined, I worked for Talpa Network um, in the Netherlands. I am based in the Netherlands as well. I'm based in Amsterdam. And uh, I used to be a head of, in my previous role, head of one of their commercial television channels, Net5, where I was responsible for all local programming, original productions and scheduling, uh, overseeing the brand development um, and content strategy. Um, before that, I worked in acquisitions for a very long time, overseeing all um, acquisitions for several Dutch television channels. So basically looking at uh, trends, uh, formats uh, across the, across the uh, content slate of scripted, unscripted, uh, but mostly unscripted, as in the Netherlands, we are very keen on unscripted shows in particular. Um, and prior to that, uh, I worked in production myself. So I worked for several Dutch production companies uh, as an editor. Um, so in a nutshell, that's sort of um, my history. And so how does your position work? You, you have um, an EMEA role, but there are also these local services. How, how does it all filter through? Well, it's basically like Anthony mentioned. So I'm in a central role and I work very closely together with the local teams. Um, so we are in constant contact. We have very short lines. Uh, we do, you know, pitches together. Uh, if there's uh, a program that's been submitted, uh, we review it together. We talk it over. Uh, we try to find the best fit for the local territories. So it's really... Um, it is a centralized role, uh, so in some occasions I'll look at formats that might be, you know, international formats, but where I think they might be suitable for a local adaptation in one of our territories, uh, and then I'll bring it to the local team. Um, so it's really a, um, a very close uh, co-working situation where we work from the central position and the local position to find uh, the best formats for HBO Max. And what are you looking for? What is an HBO Max for format? I was just 
recently writing about the return of Sex in the City and looking at the way that drama, when it first came to HBO, it, it changed things a lot. When certain documentary styles, I'm thinking of the Jinx, came to HBO, they changed things a lot. What, what's, what's the format ambitions for HBO? So, well, I think it's good to, uh, Anthony already mentioned it, but I, I think it's good to repeat that when I talk about unscripted and when I talk about our unscripted slates, uh, it's not the documentaries, uh, those still uh, uh, sit with Hanka, um, but I focus much more on the formatted entertainment um, area of the unscripted uh, field. So I think that's important to, to mention. Um, in terms of what type of format we're looking for, uh, as Anthony said, you know, we for HBO Max are looking to appeal to a broader audience than the traditional HBO uh, audience. Uh, so therefore, we look for uh, formats in popular genres. Um, having said that, I do always ask producers and challenge them to think about what makes the show distinctive, what you know helps us build our own unscripted identity. Um, so I always ask for people to tell me, what's the original twist? Is there a different angle? Uh, maybe it's a talent, you know, doing something we've not seen them do before. Um, so that is something important. We want to make an impact in the in the markets where we uh, um, premiere these shows. So we need we want to bring something new to the market as well. Um, another thing is that in terms of genres or themes, we are very open. We want to you know try a lot of different things, uh, create a diverse slate, uh, both on a local level as on an EMEA level. Um, so we are open to discuss many uh, different genres and subgenres. Um, and in terms of formats, uh, Anthony mentioned it briefly in the beginning. We are open to paper, original paper formats. Uh, obviously, uh, that's uh, the upside of that is that we might adapt that across uh, our footprint. Um, but we are also open to existing formats, uh, so from a catalog or third-party format. Uh, it's really about finding the right fit um, for that territory that's relevant for the local audience and fits the local market. Um, I think it's equally important maybe to mention what it is we're not looking for, because um, that's obviously also uh, guidance. Um, when we look at shows, I think it's important because we are you know, a bit broader than the traditional HBO uh, audience, um, that we shows that feel too niche or very specific in their topic uh, are more challenging for us. Um, and uh, in terms of the look and feel of a show, uh, the sentiment of a show, I think it's important to know that we want to stay away from shows that, um, well, what would be a good, good word, uh, are a bit vulgar, um, maybe look down on communities, uh, marginalize people, um, a bit more trashy um, that, you know, that those type of shows can really create a social buzz, but that's not the social buzz that we are looking to connect to our, uh, to our brand. And so I guess this is for both of you. You're, you're looking in a way to forge a, uh, an identity in a number of different ways in, in and across Europe. And how does what you're looking for in terms of unscripted, what, what, what would you say an HBO brand kind of set of ideas would be? How do you forge your identity using unscripted? Should I go first? Yeah. Um, uh, well, for, uh, uh, I keep trying to say, I think we have to get away from the idea that it has to be an unscripted that fits HBO. 
it's an unscripted that needs to sit comfortably within the HBO <coughs> Max universe. And if you look at what they've done in the United States, they've made a ton of unscripted shows already on, uh, for HBO Max in the US. Um, and they too are exploring ultimately what that identity will be. I think it's an evolutionary process. I don't think we'll suddenly be able to define in three months time exactly what it is. But there is a range and I think that the range you know, it could be working with, we might do something like a late night talk show, or we might do something like an international uh, format, or we might say, it's gonna depend on the country, but I think I would say that we're never going to be a high volume uh, commissioner of, of, of these things. We're not throwing 30 shows against the wall and seeing which, which ones stick. So in that universe, just as in the scripted, we have to try and pick the things that are gonna be noisy in some form or another in, in the market where we've commissioned them. Um, and that could be to do with scale, it could be to do with emotional scale, it could be to do with the artist that you've secured, who's, I think Annalise already mentioned the idea of talent being absolutely critical to getting the attention. Um, I think, we're, we're, as Annalise said, we're not, we're not gonna be looking we don't want to define our identity on doing um, shows that are sort of super niche for a small, for a small already interested audience. Um, but Annalise, you would want to add to that, I think. Well, I, I think that those are all, you know, very um, uh, good points. And I just add that, you know, we want shows that appeal to a broad audience. Uh, we want, that doesn't mean they all have to appeal to the same audience. We, we as I said, we really want to try different things also to try to find what is that unscripted identity. We are at the beginning of this journey. Um, so that's also why we want to try different things. And it can really be very broad. So it can be, you know, reality competition, as Anthony mentioned, talk show, it can be comedy, uh, can go from dating to cooking to traveling to, uh, you know, we re we're really open. Um, and in terms of the social buzz uh, that Anthony also mentioned, uh, I think it's very important to emphasize that uh, the social buzz needs to be a direct result of, you know, the originality of a format, the talent, the storytelling. Uh, it is not a goal in itself. Uh, I hope that makes sense. But what I mean with that is that, you know, sometimes when we try really hard to find something that creates a social buzz, it ends up, you know, going terribly wrong because it's sort of a marketing show. Uh, that's not what we're looking for. It really is about, you know, good content first. Um, and uh, as Anthony mentioned, you know, the skill and ambition that we put into our projects, I think that's a very important tool for us to uh, select the projects that we feel could have the greatest impact in that market. So there's a question coming, which actually is sort of a version of a question I was next about to ask. So I'll, I'll with your permission, Anonymous, I will expand out the, the point you're making, which the, the question from the audience is, what's a format from the HBO Max US service you've enjoyed and think could work in Europe? But I wonder if in a slightly broader sense, you could talk about some of the, ex just, just I guess case studies from how HBO Max has, has been experimenting, as you said, discovering what, what is HBO Max and what isn't in, I think in the US. Annalise could answer that too. Yeah. Well, obviously, we are very lucky to have the HBO Max US um, 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 formats uh, that we can look at. And I think they've done an excellent job at broadening the slate, trying a lot of different things, uh, but also really elevating the formats that they've done. Uh, you know, it's not about, uh, obviously, in everything we do, we want an HBO quality. So it's not 
And that's not about highbrow shows, but that's about bringing the best talent, the best storytelling. And what I really liked from, uh, from the US, for example, is you know, shows that really did well for them are shows that you know, people either can re relate to or are sort of an escapism in these times, like Selena and Chef, which has worked really well for them and they're uh, working on their fourth series. Uh, that's could really you, a when form you talk of escape, about the shows, just because escapism. we won't necessarily have seen them, could you explain the shows a little bit when you talk about the names of the shows? Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah. So Selena Plus Chef was one of the uh, examples of a show where they really um, uh, took sort of, you know, looked at the current situation, like where we are in and where we started two years ago when we all went into lockdown. And so it's about Selena in her own home, you know, uh, with a, a television screen where there's a chef remotely you know, uh, um, learning, teaching her uh, to cook. And while doing so, we really get sort of a, a feel of her personal life, uh, her friends, her family are part of it. Uh, you pick up a thing or two about cooking. You have these wonderful chefs. And so it's, it's a really great example of how Unscripted can really sort of tap in the current situation um, of people. Um, but also a show like F-Boy Island, for example, it's quite different. It's obviously a dating show and there are many dating shows. It's one of the most popular genres uh, at the moment. But I, I think they did an excellent job with the comedy angle, also really sort of making it a bit more upscale. Um, and so I think those are a couple of uh, examples that, that I think worked really well for them in the U.S. Anything that you personally uh, found appealing? No, I, I would uh, echo that. I think one of the things that um, you know, one of the things they have had success with is sort of behind the scenes with celebrities and personalities. I can't think of titles off the top of my head, but 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 getting the sort of up close and personal kind of documentary series has, have worked well for them. And of course, in those those sorts of ideas are are very adaptable anywhere because you can find a local celebrity and try and do the same, same kind of a thing. But I think if you think about where, where we can draw from, as well as the producers community, and, and Annalise and the local teams have been hearing pitches from all the local producers in these different territories, but you know we do have the opportunity to look at the HBO Max uh, shows that they own and think about reversioning. We also have a sister company, Warner Brothers International Television Productions, who are producing for all kinds of people all around the world, and we've got opportunities to, to hear um, from them what they've got and might work. Um, but we are an open door for the production communities in all our countries. We have a question about natural history uh, and natural history titles. Where, would, where does that sit? Where does natural history sit in the HBO, HBO Max uh, panoply? Shall I take that one, Anthony? Yes, sure. Um, so I think with natural history, it really depends. The difficulty sometimes with natural history shows is that it's a little bit more difficult to localize it. Um, so obviously, you know, as we've been talking about, our primary goal is to make shows that fit the local market and that appeal to the local audience. That means that, you know, we, we look at uh, local talent, uh, local contestants, uh, local stories. Um, so um, I think we are open to it. Uh, depend, you know, if, if it's uh, something that feels very local and focuses on the local uh, part of, um, of, 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 of that uh, um, genre. Uh, sometimes we get formats pitched that are wonderful. They are great formats, um, maybe about, you know, uh, 
uh, discovering the roots of African music in Africa with a big uh, A-list talent in the US, or maybe a very large, um, you know, a documentary series about global um, global uh, history or global, well, natural history. Um, and those are wonderful shows, but for us, they're a bit more difficult to place under the local strategy that we work with. Um, so I think, yes, absolutely, we're open to it. Uh, we are not excluding anything at the moment. But then I would challenge you to think about what makes it relevant in that particular market. Just so, uh, the, you know, that's obviously also an area that, that we would explore in, document, in documentaries, both single and documentary series. And actually, before very long, we will announce one in one of our countries that is actually a documentary series for the first time for us. Um, in, in that area of, of natural history and nature. Anthony Root and Annalise Sitvar speaking with Stephen Armstrong. You can hear the rest of that interview by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station or watch the video version at c21media.net if you're a pro subscriber. Michael Lombardo is president of Global Television at Entertainment One responsible for the company's scripted and unscripted TV divisions in the US, UK and Canada. He oversees a slate of series including The Rookie on ABC, Cruel Summer on Freeform and Hulu, Yellow Jackets on Showtime and Grey Mail on Netflix, plus dozens of shows in development at platforms including Apple TV+. Lombardo, previously a long-serving programming president at HBO, spoke to Nico Franks recently at C21's Content London about E1's upcoming slate, his international content strategy, perspective on streamers and the future of US pilot season. Uh, you spent over 30 years at mm -hmm. HBO and yeah. then after leaving HBO, um, you were brought in initially as a consultant yeah. um, by E1. So what was your impression of E1 before you joined you know, before I joined, I knew E1. We had uh, done two shows with E1. Uh, um, and so I knew they had taste, but I really was not clear exactly on the shape and sort of North Star of the show. I also knew that they had been purchased by Hasbro. So it seemed, again, not curious, but what, what was going on there? So I really, my, my first time meeting uh, Darren Throop and Steve Bertram, who run film and television, uh, Darren actually founded the company, was really just like, what the hell are you? And um, what I found was this incredibly dynamic company at a pivot point. You know, they had recently been purchased by Hasbro, uh, which gave them the not only a vast sort of uh, supply of IP, but the financial wherewithal to really sort of and compete as a 21st century studio. And, uh, and it seemed really exciting to me, and it's been that since I've started. Definitely, yeah, I remember when that press release came into my inbox, Hasbro acquiring E1, it was a bit of a, oh, okay, the, one of the world's biggest toy companies is acquiring E1, and obviously E1, part of its kids and family arm, Peppa Pig, yep. you, can see, you can see the logic there, yeah, other, yeah, PJ Masks, some great kids shows, but it gave Hasbro all these drama production companies, factual production companies, yep. areas that they were previously not really working in, um, but I suppose there's similarities there with you, because 
you've spent decades zeroing in on premium cable Correct. and drama and the incredible drama that HBO is known for. Um, so how are you approaching now yeah, exactly. also that, but also factual, unscripted? Yeah. It, you know, I think uh, when I left HBO, I had a long, successful run. Uh, and what, one thing I knew I didn't want to do was try to duplicate the same thing. And what I was offered at E1 is the opportunity to sort of explore areas that were totally new to me. So huge, powerful, unscripted group, uh, a really robust broadcast television business, as well as what I'll call the premium television that I had known. And, um, and I think the opportunity as well of a sort of how do you take brands, toy brands, and turn them into compelling television. Uh, it sort of presented a kind of challenge that I had never done before. And, um, and as I said, what was so exciting about it and what's proven exciting is Hasbro's mandate was like, yes, we'd love you to figure out how to convert some of these brands because they've had a, they had enormous success with Paramount and their experience on Transformers. Here was a toy that some Michael Bay and Steven Spielberg and their team breathed life into, and it changed the relationship. It turned it into a brand. And so Brian Goldner saw the sort of power opportunity of taking a toy company and reshifting it to a brand company, and part of that was to have compelling content. Um, but the content had to be original and, and uh, vital and never feel like it was a commercial for the brand. So, um, but, so that, but that was all new and exciting, and it continues to be really exciting and challenging. Mm-hmm. And of um, those brands, yeah, like yeah. Monopoly, Risk, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Dungeons and Dragons, which of those brands, which is kind of furthest down the line in terms of um, coming to screen and how are you approaching it? Well, you know, it's, it's a little bit serendipity, a little bit good luck, and a little bit strategy. But some of the brands are very far along in, in, in what I'll call the unscripted world. You know, some of them lend themselves beautifully to a game show. So we have a number of them set up with networks in the U.S. uh, that I think you'll see over the next year. I mean, the first one up, we have Play-Doh, a game premiering on Amazon. Um, In the scripted area, uh, I think the one I'm most excited about in terms of where it is 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 Power Rangers. You know, again, it's it's a brand that I had a very limited relationship with, it's a brand that they had acquired a number of years ago that they acknowledged needed a reboot. It was, you know, it had had uh, a long and varied experience on television and, and movies. And so this was an opportunity to take a brand and find a creator who would breathe new life into it. And, and you know, I, I, we're all huge fans of, end of the fucking world, and 
I'm not okay with this. I thought, I'm not okay with this on Netflix. And I thought, and I know it only went one season. I thought, this is the freshest take on a superhero show that I had seen. And Jonathan Entwistle uh, was excited by Power Rangers. And he's really spearheading um, a sort of brand reinvention. And we're starting with a show at Netflix, and uh, we're on our way. So again, I don't, you know, you never know until you know. But I, I, I think it has the potential to be something not only that reinvents a brand, but really compelling television, mm-hmm. which is what what I'm doing. I'm, you know, like I, I, I don't think any of this works unless there's integrity in the, in the show. Uh, you know, uh, Power Rangers is a great brand, and maybe someone's going to tune in to check it out. But unless that show grabs you and takes you on a ride, you're not going to stay with it. So is it about going darker? Because obviously the, I don't know the if it's going darker. It's very it's excited about being, Power Rangers show. It's being less heightened. It's being, you know, like, it needs to come down, and you need to, you need to connect with the people underneath the costume. You need to feel a world beyond the bells and whistles, which are fantastic of the kind of fantasy. Um, you know, like my limited experience in fantasy, and I, 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 I use Game of Thrones as an example, is like that worked. I mean, we didn't have dragons until the very last episode of the first season. The buy-in on that show was on a very human level. And I think the best fantasy shows work in that way. I think the best Marvel shows work in that way, connecting with the characters before they put on. And I think that's what Jonathan's doing. And that's, what he, that's why he seemed so right. He had done YA shows that I, I think debunked what we thought of as YA. Mm-hmm. And, and YA shows that adults could watch. And I think he's doing that with Power Rangers. And obviously, so that's all in-house mm-hmm. brands, IP. Yep. What opportunities are there for independents to, yeah, look, to get involved? You know, it's, it's um, for independent production companies, independent studios. Yeah. yeah, look, I think, you know, much has been spoken about, at least in the U.S., about the challenge of the independent studio. We're all living in a moment of incredible, incredible vertical integration where every platform, every network has an in-house production capability. Uh, and I think the opportunity that I've seen for us is for either partnering with independents or as a home for talent that is looking for a partner that helps them navigate a very complicated ecosystem out there without pointing them to one platform and dictating what the result should be. Like, you know, talent and and independent producers who have ideas are looking for somebody, a company that not only has the financial wherewithal, but hopefully the skill set to help them figure out what's the best home. What's the best execution of their vision? And so we've opened our arms. We have, we continue to make a number of deals, overall deals with independent producers, with writers, with actors. And, you know, I think uh, 
fortunately, we're in a very unique position. There are very few independent studios left like E1. And I think there's a challenge because you have to, you're, as I said, you're, you're, you're competing in a vertically integrated ecosystem, but there's an opportunity. Talent is desperate for the kind of partnership that we can offer. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that has affected the kinds of overall deals that you've been doing, is yes. that right? Yeah, I, I think when I joined E1, they had a history of doing, including most recently, a, a large deal with the Mark Gordon company, but with bigger production companies, and <clears throat> which have been incredibly advantageous. The truth of the matter, Nico, is in, as I look out there, there are two things that a company needs to succeed, IP and talent. And we have a treasure trove of IP for the Hasbro stuff. We're incredibly acquisitive. We made a deal with James Patterson, for instance, who's incredibly prolific and creates literally every book he creates is a broadcast show. But the other thing we didn't have and we're leaning into now are deals with writers, writers and actors. As, as the number of buyers have increased, as volume of television production has increased, what hasn't increased with the same speed is the pool of talented, experienced writers. And uh, so we're opportunistic and thoughtful, and, but we are, we've made deals with Bo Williman, with Brian Cogman, who I knew from Game of Thrones, uh, um, make a deal with the Clarkson twins who work out of the UK. We're growing our relationships with the talent community, not to, have them be exclusive with us, but to, to make sure we have an organic, vital relationship where we can work with them in creating the next great show. Mm -hmm. And are you seeing enough of a demand? Because obviously with the way streamers kind of yep. work, um, a lot of their projects are with established talent because they need, yep. they need those brands, eye-catching brands. Um, how about new talent? Are you looking to work with Absolutely. New Look, I think that's... You know, for people like myself been doing this for a while, that's the joy in this business. To read a script, to have a meeting, and take a chance on somebody who hasn't yet created the great show to find. And, and, and they're there. It does take an enormous amount of work because that means you have to read a lot, you have to meet a lot. But absolutely, and I do think in this moment where, look, established writers, established creators are busy and are desired by all of the platforms, some of the freshest new ideas come from people who are coming from outside the system. And unless you continue to be open to that, you're missing incredible opportunities. So yeah, look, you know, it requires, though, a mindfulness that I think all of us embrace. And um, so for every Jonathan Entwistle, uh, we make a deal with a, you know, we have a project with a, a, a young woman doing a project with, for Hillary Swank's show that, you know, this will be her first show if it happens. And she's really talented. And you sit in a room and you go, that's part of the joy of this job, you know. Um, of going on a journey with somebody and uh, for their first sort of show that pops. 
And having been so focused on the US, what's your impression of the international market? You know, the international market's been, a, even in the short time that I've been there, look, E1 has always been an international company. We have a vital business out of Toronto, uh, which has historically serviced the Canadian broadcasters. And we've had a long uh, presence here in the UK and have had a long relationship, particularly with the BBC. And so we have a number of shows set up there. I think what we're all seeing right now is a incredible growth and opportunities in you know, non-LA, non-US offices. So in Canada, uh, you know, Amazon's now opened an office. Netflix has opened an office. And so those offices, we're ideally situated to sell and produce for those, uh, those buyers. And similarly in the UK, you know, part of the reason I'm, I'm here with my colleague Pancho Mansfield is not just to meet, sit with you, Nico, but to meet with the increasing number of really robust buyers here. And it's a very dynamic market. And again, I think it's critical to service that market that you have a presence there. You can't do that from LA. You shouldn't do it from LA. What those buyers are looking for is for content that speaks to people living here, to content that feels organic and, and, and British. And I don't... I, I, I think that has to come from here. So I think we're very much leaning in to sort of a three, what I'll call a three-pronged approach to content. God willing, you know, it goes beyond that. But this is a company that has the ability to deficit finance shows that need, you know, if a UK show, a UK buyer is not able to cover the full cost of a show that doesn't terrify us. That's an exciting opportunity. So those are areas of growth that we continue to really lean into. How about the appetite for completely kind of non-English language programming? Look, you know, uh, we talk about that all the time. We're doing a show actually right now uh, with Apple that is to be um, produced in Spanish. Now, we have a US writer who will be translated the challenge will be how do we grow where there, uh, you know, in my own parochialism, you know, my Spanish isn't great. How do we, but I think those are growth opportunities. We meet continually with Latin American writers. Um, there's a proximity from the U.S. and it's a really growth and emerging. And, I don't, and, and the other thing, there is a wealth of great writers that have been untapped for U.S. audiences, for U.K. audiences. So I see those as opportunities for an independent studio. Any more uh, info on that Apple show you can, you can talk about? No, it's it, it, in early, early stages of development. But, you know, I think it just shows that I think, you know, I think all of the buyers are interested in platform, in, in programs that speak not just to the ecosystem of Los Angeles in the US, mm -hmm. but that feel truthful and honest to the different 
areas they serve. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, speaking to that, a lot of the questions coming in are, so are you open to, open to commissioning French originals? How global is E1's global television business? Are you doing anything in Asia, Africa, or India? Do you have ambitions to do so? The answer to the last question is absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the first order of business is to make sure our, our business in UK and Canada is as robust as our business in the US. But I think, again, the opportunity for a studio at this point has to be internationalizing. The world is of entertainment that had been so US focused is decentralizing. Um, we're all watching shows from countries we never imagined we'd be watching. Uh, their work, what we're finding as these platforms become international is that a show that works in India can work here. So it is, how do you do that? And the only way to do it is to be in the country. You can't do that from LA. It's gonna feel different. And so I, I think those are areas of growth that we talk about and we'll do organically and smartly, but I think Right now, the good news is, out of the three sort of central offices we have, we have a, a lot of opportunities. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do some uh, quick-fire ones. Okay. So, um, ratings or awards? Ratings or awards. It's, you know, I come from a culture where, you know, it was all awards. You know, there's nothing more satisfying than a show that's widely viewed. I'm just, you know... Uh, the broadcast business and people, you know, it's a challenging business. It's a business under siege. But I've had more people talk to me about The Rookie than talk to me about 90% of the shows I've worked on in my life. And so I'll take ratings any day. Um, how about the future of the, the U.S. pilot season? It, it's... it's, it's uh, it still exists. It's clearly changing. Um, I do think you know pilots are being made, commissioned at various times during the year now. Uh, I think they're still, because of the advertising business, an interest in ordering, coming up with a schedule at the same time. But that massive kind of uh, mentality of, of everybody you, being on the same schedule is shifting. I don't know where we'll be in three years, five years. I think uh, it's, you know, everything's in flux. And so, uh, you know, May screenings, uh, you know, is that still going to be a thing five years from now? I wouldn't be surprised if it weren't. Mm -hmm. Partly, I suppose, because what, what will be there to buy for the international well, that's community? That's true. Although, you know, I think the broadcast business is still a business where... There are opportunities for, for international buyers. There are still shows where, and that's why we lean into that business. We have a lot in development there because we're still able to own the shows, finance the shows, and distribute them internationally. And that's always been part of E1's business, and it's a part of our business I'm particularly interested in, in continuing to fertilize. How do you see what could have previously been a distinction between what would be called a linear show and a streaming show. Yeah. You know, again, I, I come from a culture where there is a, such a hard line. You know, 
somehow they felt like entirely different species. And that's just not true anymore. It's not true for talent, you know, where you'd have writers that only worked in broadcast or only, you know, they want to find the best home for the show. I think uh, we've, the show I mentioned with, with Hilary Swank, we're waiting on a script before we take it out, but it's as likely to go to NBC as it is to go to HBO Max. And I think there's a space now of what I'll call elevated entertainment that works equally in a broadcast space as in a, um, a streaming space. So, yeah, there are those shows that could only live on uh, a streamer, and there are probably some shows that could only live, but in the middle, it's starting to blur. And, and I think talent's excited by that. I'm excited by that. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's good for the business. Yeah, it's interesting seeing it's HBO, but for HBO Max, looking for things like dating shows. And- That's right. I mean, you know, reality shows, unscripted shows, used to be the province, you know, like, the, you know, off-network. There's not a streamer now. There's not a premium service that people pay for that doesn't have unscripted television that is very successful. And the viewer doesn't care. I mean, the viewer wants to have a variety of offerings. And, I mean, you look yourself, you know, even on the scripted areas, like a show like Bridgerton, which had great production values, but I think the bones of that could work anywhere, you know, which is great. And, and I don't think you have a viewer sitting there going, my God, there's no nudity and, and graphic language. How could this be on a streamer? Uh, the viewer's not making those judgments anymore. How about the finances? Because we've been hearing quite yeah. a lot at Content London this year about this the strain that the pandemic is putting on, on budgets and the, the extra additions yeah. and also the sheer demand for production crews and things yeah, like no, that. No, it's been a challenge. There's no question. You know, the <sighs> COVID put everything on pause. And so uh, then as COVID, as we figured out how to continue to produce in a COVID world, all of a sudden, everyone's out there hiring crews, looking for studios at the same time. And it has been, uh, for production departments, it's been a totally, you know, like challenging experience. But, you know, the, the good news, the exciting news is people are figuring it out. Mm. You know, you're hiring new hires. It's creating new opportunities. Um, and, and people are in production. We're figuring out how to produce with COVID rules and you know, networks and studios like E1 are figuring out how to cover the costs and the hours that uh, need to be regulated for COVID protocols and making it work. Mm. And hopefully for the consumer, they don't feel the difference. Does it mean you're able to do fewer shows? <sighs> no. I think the truth, the appetite is still there. I think the backlog in production has resulted in fewer new orders, but we were doing more episodes of The Rookie this year than we've ever done. 
I think, uh, look, uh, we fi- everyone has figured it out. And look, things can change, but I think nobody imagined that we would all figure out a way of continuing business in a pandemic world. And I think we have. I mean, you've made adjustments. You know, meeting people face-to-face is slightly different. Working with a mask on is different. But we're figuring it out. Michael Lombardo speaking with Nico Franks. That's all for this episode. You can hear more discussion by tuning into the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 